0: Good morning, please grab your Bible and turn to 2nd Kings chapter 25 the title of my message today is three promises uh, you probably are already aware of this but uh, we are currently in the the season commonly known as Advent Advent is uh, it runs from December the 1st through Christmas Eve on December the 24th uh, the name comes from the Latin word adventus for coming uh, which is the translation for the Greek word "perusia," which is used to refer to the second coming of Christ, um, and and so there are those who ritualize the season of Advent and they turn it into a type of a feast or a festival or some sort of special commemoration. I, I, I don't advocate for that. I don't I don't know that that's the biblical way to go about things. Uh, rather, I would say that believers can utilize the time of Advent, the season of Advent, to think about. The promises of God in Christ. And the primary uh, promises of God in Christ uh, is that Christ has come to save sinners and that he will come again to make all things new. And so today, my aim is to turn our hearts toward Christ by looking at some of the promises of God and how he kept them. Um, and, and as we do that, I want us to rejoice in the fact that we have hope because God does not fail, because God keeps his promises. And so we're going to be in 2 Kings 25 today, but we're going to utilize some different scriptures to kind of help us along in that narrative. Uh, and so we're going to, before we go to 2 Kings 25, we're going to start in Deuteronomy 31. Uh, we, we are at the end of Moses's life here, and uh, and God gives Moses some some information that's likely pretty hard to hear. And so in verses 16 through 18, this is what it says. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. Then they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? And i will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done because they have turned to other gods and so god says here that the people of the his people will, will turn to other gods and and boy do they ever a wicked king after wicked king leads a horribly sinful people who constantly turn against god and so that brings us to where we are in second kings uh, Israel has already been destroyed. Only Judah is left. So at some point that the kingdom's divided and the northern kingdom has already gone. And so it's just Judah. And these things kind of come to a head uh, under a king over Judah named Manasseh in 2 Kings 21. Uh, Manasseh's father, Hezekiah, uh, was a better king than most. Uh, he tore down the altars to false gods that were throughout Judah. Uh, But Manasseh, when he comes to power, he rebuilds those altars to false gods. And not only does he rebuild the altars, he actually builds altars to these false gods inside of the temple, which brings in that false worship and all of the other wickedness that comes along with it, Uh, things like temple prostitution and such. Um, Manasseh also practices child sacrifice using his own children. Um, The Bible says using using figurative language that manasseh shed so much innocent blood that it filled jerusalem so it gives us that picture of a very wicked man who does very wicked things and and sheds a lot of innocent blood and the bible tells us that the people of judah followed him in his evil as well so it wasn't just isolated to manasseh rather than rising up against him because he was a wicked man they follow him in that wickedness and so God makes a promise because of the evil and wickedness of Manasseh in 2nd Kings 21 verses 10 through 15 this is what it says and the Lord said by his servants the prophets because Manasseh king of Judah has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster, that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria, and the plum line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down and i will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of egypt even to this day so god makes this promise that he is going to destroy jerusalem because of this evil and then nothing happens nothing happens years go by without this promise coming to pass and more kings more evil kings rule over god's people and so we we go on and then all of a sudden this new world power enters the scene babylon led by nebuchadnezzar and he babylon nebuchadnezzar comes against the assyrians and he defeats them Uh, and that essentially makes him the most powerful person on the planet and so he comes and he, he allows Judah's king Jehoiakim to still rule, but he has to rule kind of as a servant of Nebuchadnezzar. And th- after three years, Jehoiakim decides that he wants to rebel against Babylon. Uh, but the Bible tells us that the Lord sent against him armies to destroy Judah. And it tells us that this is specifically because of the sins of Manasseh. So Jehoiakim is killed. And his son Jehoiachin is given the rule in his place, but he also does evil in the sight of the Lord. And so eventually Nebuchadnezzar himself comes to Jerusalem and he carries off the treasures and he he carries off all the people except the poorest in the land. He captures Jehoiachin and all of his family and puts them into prison in Babylon. And he installs Jehoiachin's uncle, his king, and he changes his name from Madaniah to Zedekiah. And Zedekiah is also a wicked king. And the scriptures tell us that it's because God has cast Judah and Jerusalem out of his presence. That's why Zedekiah is a wicked king, because God is no longer among them. And Zedekiah, he rules for nine years, and then he decides that he wants to rebel against Babylon. And so that brings us to where we are in Second Kings twenty-five. And so as we look together at three promises uh, here today, uh, the first promise we're going to see is is the kingdom being destroyed. So let's look at Second Kings twenty-five, and uh, it's going to we'll look at the first twenty-six verses for this point. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon came with all his army against Jerusalem, and laid siege, laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city. And they went in the direction of the Ereba. But the the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king, and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him in chains, and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of the king of King Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem, and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vinedressers and plowmen. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord, and the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away all the pots and the shovels, and the snuffers, and the dishes, for incense, and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, the firepans also, and the bowls. What was of gold the captain of the guard took away as gold, and what was of silver as silver. As for the two pillars, the one sea, and the stands that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. The height of the one pillar was eighteen cubits, and on it was a capital of bronze, The height of the capital was three cubits, a latticework and pomegranates, all of bronze were all around the capital, and the second pillar had the same with the latticework. And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest and the three keepers of the threshold, and from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war, and five men of the king's council who were found in the city, and the secretary of the commander of the army, who mustered the people of the land and sixty men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. And over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, governor. Now, when all the captains and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah governor, they came with their men to Gedaliah at Mitzpah, namely Ishmael the son of Nethaniah, and Johanan the son of Kareah, and Sariah the son of Tanhumeth, the Netophathite, and Jazaniah the son of the Makathite. And Gedaliah swore to them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid, because of the Chaldean officials. Live in the land, and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. But in the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, son of Elishama of the royal family, came with ten men and struck down Gedaliah and put him to death, along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mitzpah. Then all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the forces arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. So the Babylonians really mean business this time. Um, this is the third revolt that they've put down, and so they come and they place siege works all around the city because they intend to destroy it. That's their that's their intent, and so there's a two year siege, and the siege brings about a famine that is so severe that there is literally no food, and so the cowardly king Zedekiah abandons his people, and he and his troops flee by night, and they they run away, and they are captured by the Babylonians, by the Chaldeans, and brought to Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar passes sentence on Zedekiah, and his punishment is that they make him watch as they kill all of his children in front of him, and then they pluck out his eyes and they carry him off into slavery. And so about a month later, Nebuzaradan, who would be best described as the hatchet man of the king of Babylon, he shows up on a mission to utterly destroy the city. And so he starts to burn all the great houses and he burns down the temple after he pillages it completely. Um, They destroy all the walls of the city, they carry off everything within the temple. Um, Then Nebuzaradan takes. The priest, he takes the remaining members of the king's council, he takes some soldiers, and he takes 60 men from among the common people, and they are all put to death by Nebuchadnezzar. Then they appoint a man named Gedaliah, uh, who is not not really a part of the royal family, and they appoint him as the governor over the territory, and he is later assassinated by a member of the royal family, and that assassination causes a great fear of the Babylonians coming back and attacking them. And so they, everyone who can at that point, they all flee to Egypt out of fear. And so it leaves Jerusalem pretty much as a barren wasteland. And so if you remember God's promise in 2 Kings 21, you know, he said, I'm going to utterly destroy Jerusalem like you would do by wiping a dish and turning it upside down. And so this is a promise kept by God he will judge and punish sin he may not do it quickly he may not do it on a timetable that we necessarily think is is appropriate but he will judge and punish sin and so think about these events from the perspective of the people okay the land that god had promised them is now gone the riches that god had blessed them with are now gone The kingly line that God had given them is now gone. The temple of God that they worshipped him in is now gone. Protection from their enemies is now gone. The priests and their leadership and the worship of God are now gone. So all of these things that God had provided to his people as a part of his promise, his covenant with them, because Israel has violated the covenant, Because Judah has violated the covenant, God has taken those things from them. And so they're all gone. And the remnants who have not been carried off into slavery are now going back to the place that God brought them out of, as in Egypt, to give them the land that was just taken from them. So, in a very real sense, it's almost like. All of the things that God has promised his people since Egypt, he is essentially just erasing all of it. But the reality is that this is not God being harsh or unjust. This is their fault. The people brought this on themselves by following after other gods, just as the Lord told Moses hundreds of years ago that they would. And so this certainly seems like a hopeless time where God has abandoned his people because of their sin. So the first promise that we see here is not a good one. It's not a, a pleasant one that we see, but it is important. It's important because we need to recognize and understand that God keeps all of his promises, not just the ones that make us feel good, not just the ones that bring us joy, but the ones that Are ultimately going to preserve and illustrate his holiness Um, and so that brings us to the second promise that we see and that's the the line of David and so right here it seems hopeless but there are other promises that God has made that that kind of conflict with this sense of hopelessness and so to, to kind of really understand what i mean by this um let's think about first samuel so back in first samuel after the the book of judges israel wants a king they want a king because they want to be like the other nations they they wanted a champion who would fight their battles and defeat their enemies someone that they could take great pride in they wanted a messiah is what they wanted. And they were not content with God being their champion, with God fighting their battles, with God defeating their enemies. They wanted one of their own to be able to do this. And so they ended up with a man named Saul as their king. And Saul was exactly what they were looking for. The Bible tells us that he was, he was the best looking man in the whole country. He was a full head taller than every other person in Israel. But Saul was not a man of God, and Saul consistently and repeatedly sinned, and ultimately the kingdom was taken from him and given to a man named David. David was described after as a man after God's own heart, and David had his own sin issues that were pretty substantial, um, but, but none of those sin issues go against this promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, verses 8 through 16. This is what it says. Now, therefore, thus shall ye say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God makes this promise to David. And the promise to David essentially is, I am going to establish your line, your family, as a king over my people. And this line, your house, and the kingdom will never end. They will be forever. So then you get to 2 Kings 25. And there's no kingdom, there's no people, and there's no king. So things seem really bleak. And when you hold up the promise of God that he made to David, it seems like God is lying. It seems like God has not kept his promise because this can, this goes on for 37 years. That there is no king. That there are no people. But look with me at verses 27-30 through 30 of Second Samuel excuse me, of 2 Kings 25 and this is what it says. And in the 37th year of the exile Jehoiachin, king of Judah in the 12th month on the 27th day of the month evil Merodach, king of Babylon in the year that he began to reign graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. So here... 37 years later, this king, Jehoiachin, is freed by the king of Babylon, a man who literally has the word evil in his name. and doesn't tell us why. It doesn't tell us his motivation. It just tells us he graciously freed Jehoiachin. He's kind to him. Joachim does not have prison garments any longer. He is given a seat above all the other kings. He eats at the king's table. He is given an allowance to meet all of his daily needs. And he is allowed to flourish there in Babylon. Why? Why is he allowed to flourish In Babylon because of the promise of God to David God made a promise to David that his family his line would reign over God's people forever and so God does not extinguish this line despite their evil and wickedness God does not extinguish This line because he is not finished yet see God here in 2nd Kings 25 is keeping his promise in a way that does not make any sense to us in a way that no one would have ever expected there is literally no reason for this Babylonian king to take Jehoiachin out of prison and elevate him to this level of status and yet he does why Because God places it in his heart to do so. Because God is keeping his promises. Because God's promises are not about Jehoiachin. God's promises are ultimately about Christ. The promise that God made to David was not about David. It was about Jesus. The author of Hebrews points to this in Hebrews 1.5 where he quotes Psalm two and he says, for to which of the angels did God ever say to to say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So essentially here, what what we're seeing is we're seeing that the line of David cannot be snuffed out because God has a promise to keep. And that promise, Is the promise of Jesus Christ. That promise is the coming of the true Messiah. Remember, Israel wanted a king because they wanted a Messiah. They wanted him on their own terms, but they wanted a Messiah. All the way back in the garden, after Cain killed Abel, excuse me, before Cain killed Abel, when Cain was born, he was named that. Because his mother said, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She thought he was the Messiah. All the way back then, we have been longing for a Messiah. And so God, in keeping his promise to punish wickedness, is also keeping his promise to send a Messiah. And the promise that he made to David is linked to the promise that he made to Adam and Eve in the garden. And this is the promise that we celebrate at Christmas. Because at Christmas, we understand that Christ has come. Christ was born of the line of David, just as God promised. He lived a sinless life, just as God promised. He died a sinner's death at the hands of men, just as God promised. Where all the other kings of God's people were sinful men, who failed to obey God's word, Jesus Christ lived a life of perfect obedience and never failed. This is the part of God's promise that we have already seen fulfilled. But there's more. Because right now, as the scriptures tell us over and over, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. But God has promised that the king will sit on the throne forever. And so this is the not yet part of the third promise. Jesus will reign over all of creation. And this is what we're looking forward to with hope. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, it says this. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. will be exposed. See, Israel fell repeatedly into evil and wickedness because they often said, where is the promise of his coming? Where is God? Where is God? That was their refrain. And Peter here is encouraging us to not fall into the same sinful trap that Israel fell into. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That's the refrain. He's not coming. Look around. Things are worse than they've ever been. They're just continuing forward, just like always. Where is the promise of his coming? But Peter reminds us That God delays his coming. He delays the coming. Why? Not because he's slow. Not because he is, you know, just kind of waiting around. But he is patient towards man. Giving time for us to come to repentance. And so, Christians, hope in God, because Christ is coming again. That This is the joy of Advent, that we know that Christ is coming to save us, that he is coming to redeem us out of this world and bring us to him as he reigns forever. So Christians, hope in God. If you are not a Christian... I implore you, do not delay in repentance because Christ is coming again. See, this is the call of Advent, to repent and put your faith in Christ. The coming of Christ for the believer is a joyful thing. The coming of Christ for the non-believer is a terrifying thing. Hebrews 9.28 shows us both sides of this shows us both sides of the coming of Christ. It says this, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. When Christ came the first time, it was to deal with sin on our behalf. It was to take the wrath of God for us and to give us his righteousness. But when he comes again, he is coming to bring his people home. There will be no salvation from sin in that day. It will be too late. And so my call to you, the the scripture's call to you, is to heed the promise of God. Christians, hope in God. Non-believer, repent. Because Christ is coming again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the promises that you have given us in Scripture. And I pray, Lord, that we would trust the truth of those promises. That our hearts would be filled with joy at the coming of Christ. I pray, Father, for anyone who is watching today that does not know Jesus Christ, that their heart would be burdened to repentance by your Holy Spirit, that they would not delay, that they would know the hope of your coming, because Christ has come and will come again. So, Father, help us to prepare our hearts for the coming of Christ by trusting and resting in your promises. We pray all of this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.